0: everybody and welcome to this episode of Midwifery Love, Life and Learning. It's really wonderful to be together with my mum just now introducing this incredible podcast episode where we're interviewing and having a lovely warm conversation with Professor Michael West who we're going to introduce in a moment but I just wanted to take a moment to speak to mum because I know mum you've had such an interest in midwifery leadership. And I just wanted to ask you about how you came to know Michael's work and what impact it's had on you in your career as a midwifery leader. Of course. Hi, everyone. My name is Sheena Byram, and I'm a midwife.
1: And I I came to Michael's work via sort of a, a direct route, really. I was interested in leadership when I was working as a, a midwifery leader in clinical practice. And then I, I did a study for my master's degree. Then I sued down and I edited a book called The Roar Behind the Silence, which, is really encompassing the, uh, how respect and compassion and kindness is so important within maternity care. And while, whilst we're doing workshops, we we kind of collaborated very closely with an anaesthetist from New Zealand called Robin Youngson. And it was through working with Robin and, and via his kind of works, reading about his work, that I came across Michael West, who is, you know, somebody
0: who we're now working really closely with using his work. And we just wanted to take a moment to, you know, for us, it's been a huge privilege and honour to have this and share this conversation. And we wanted to invite Michael to share his thoughts with us about midwives and midwifery and the maternity workforce at a time when we know that everybody is facing so much and has been through so much, both personally and professionally. And we wanted to ask for his thoughts and perspectives on how compassion and compassionate healthcare and leadership can make a difference. So we just wanted to share with you a little bit about who Michael West is michael west cb joined the king's fund as a visiting fellow in 2013 and he's a professor of work and organizational psychology at lancaster university visiting professor at university college dublin and emeritus professor at aston uni he's authored edited and co-edited so many books and we use these books so much in our practice, especially his latest compassionate leadership book, and we'll make sure that we point to that across all from maternity, and we use it so much in the work that we do across our leadership programs. And we're so grateful for the practical advice that it offers. But beyond all of his books, he's co-edited and published more than two hundred articles on teamwork, leadership, and culture, particularly in healthcare. He's a fellow of the British Psychological Society, the American Psychological Association and the APA Society for Industrial Organisational Psychology, the Academy of Social Sciences and the International Association of Applied Psychologists and the British Academy of Management. You know, he's had such a big impact in helping us to understand the impact of compassionate healthcare across nursing and midwifery and across leadership across healthcare. And he's got extensive experience of working to improve staff experience and quality of care, areas that are really close to our hearts. So I think it's just, Leaves us to say, you know, if you want to learn more about Michael West, go and check out his bio across the King's Fund. You can read all of his incredible insights and reports and blogs and watch some of the wonderful videos that he's put together. But for now, we'd love to dive straight into the conversation and we hope you get so as much out of it as we did. And just to say that we absolutely loved Doing this podcast,
1: didn't we, Anna? It's the first we've done together as <laughs> mum and, and daughter. And and we we I hope you can tell from listening to the podcast how much we enjoyed speaking to Michael and how grateful we were to him for giving us his time. Hello everyone. Hello to our wonderful listeners. Um, I'm absolutely delighted today. I've got a huge, huge privilege and pleasure because I'm sat next to my daughter to start off with, which is really unusual for Anna and I to be sat in the same room recording a podcast. But in front of me on the screen is um, Michael West, who is Professor Michael West, who is someone who Anna and I follow with a passion in terms of his work and everything that he does really around supporting nhs services and healthcare in general but we're going to um hopefully explore a little bit more about maternity care today and um and we we can't believe that michael actually said yes can we when no <laughs> so when we when we first asked you michael i expected you to say oh i'm really busy and I can't do it but um, but he said yes so and uh, do you remember
0: you you mum, um, Michael mum called me really excitedly and said, "Have you seen the email? Have you seen it?" <laughs> <laughs> Michaels Michael said yes
2: it's a pleasure to be able to have this conversation with both of oh, you today. Oh, Thank you for oh, asking me.
1: Oh, Michael. And, you know, I said to my husband as I was leaving, I've got to go now because I'm going to be speaking to Michael West. So anyway, he doesn't know who you are yet, but he will do very soon. (laughs) So, Michael, um, thank you again for joining us and giving us your time. And I just wondered if you could just start this podcast recording um, by telling us a little bit about... Maybe a little bit about yourself, a, a, your personal self, and what's been your highlight in 2022?
2: Well, my highlight in 2022 has probably been the joy of having two young grandchildren, a granddaughter who is now about um, 18 months old and a grandson who is about 15 months old. And just the revelation, really, of that experience of... Unconditional love for uh, these new beings, and and how you know just how overwhelming and extraordinary that is, Mm -hmm. and how affirming in a way that is of of you know our 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 being and what it is to be human, and also I I think there's something there about you know how life continually throws up new miracles. Mm -hmm. That um, yeah, one is I'm I'm just astonished by and charmed by and delighted by. So that's been really the high point, the high points or the high high process of 2022 for me and the continuing privilege of being able to have conversations like this and talk to audiences, colleagues and people who work in the NHS and having conversations about how we can transform the conditions that people work in so that they're able to deliver high quality, compassionate care, but also so that they experience high quality and compassionate care for them within our health and care organisations.
1: Wonderful. And do, do you, thank you, Michael. Do you think that there's more attention being paid now to, I know that you've been doing this work for a significantly long time. And I just wondered, do you feel that there's there's more people? Kind of, it's gaining momentum.
2: Yes, very much so. And um, we we um, last week I attended what's called the Collective Four Nations Group in Belfast. It's a group of policy leads and practitioners from the four UK health and social care systems and from the Republic of Ireland who have a collective commitment to creating compassionate and collective leadership cultures in health and care systems and if you look across those five countries you see that compassionate leadership and support for staff is is really ab- absolutely at the center of policy and strategy and i think that's partly a consequence of i suppose a crystallizing understanding of how central this is to our ability to deliver health and care services and maternity services and midwifery services for the people of those of our countries, but also a recognition that we are currently facing the biggest crisis we've ever faced in our health and social care system with huge numbers of vacancies, particularly in maternity, increasing levels of staff stress and burnout. Those have been increasing you know, not just since the pandemic, but for a number of years. And it's particularly acute in midwifery. Yeah. Um, and the recognition that we, we can't simply go on like this. We can't simply watch staff being damaged and losing large numbers of staff because people are saying, you know, I'm exhausted and I'm tired of being exhausted. Um, you know, I can go and work in a supermarket without a big loss of pay but without all of the stress that I have in in the job. And so I think there's both a a kind of growing recognition that this is the right way to do things, but also a recognition that the bridges are burning ahead of us. And if we don't cross them quickly and create better working conditions, then our health and care system will continue to disintegrate as it's currently doing.
0: I think uh, just reflecting on on the, the, the moments that you've shared and, the, and those perspectives and obviously the work that you've done with the King's Fund to chart and map and present the bridges it burns uh, in some ways, sort of the, the, the pressures and then the solutions in the work that you've produced just reflecting on the way that we've presented some highlights and meaningful living, you know, in in our families and being able to have those close, loving, meaningful um, connections with people. I just think that one of the wider pressures and challenges we face now, as well as the pressures inside the health systems. It's also that we're facing as a collective, as humans, also that wide environmental pressures and strains. We have the fiscal climate, the pressures that people are facing in their families. And then obviously COVID has brought real real worries around health security and personal loss, grief. And I see this all sort of being a huge context of challenge and and constraints. So it'd be really good to explore with you a little later, just um, the ways in which compassionate leadership, inclusive leadership and collective leadership can really make a difference to healthcare um, and to healthcare providers. But before we get there, just for those that may not have read your book or read your um, reports and engaged with your recordings. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what actually is compassionate healthcare or what is compassion from your point
2: of view? Yeah, so it's worth, I think beginning with saying what we mean by compassion, because it's one of those warm, fuzzy words that feels like, well, that's not something you can disagree with. So what's been, I think, most extraordinary over the last three years, nearly, has been the the level of compassion that we've seen in society. So the compassion that midwives have shown for the people in their care, particularly at the height of the pandemic, you know, when it was just taking off and we didn't know what the virus was about or there wasn't adequate PP equipment and midwives continued to go in and do their jobs, even when they were afraid of losing their own lives, as we all were back in April 2020, or virtually all of us were, and the compassion that colleagues have shown to each other. So when we ask midwives and colleagues working in maternity services what's enabled them to cope over the last two and a half years the the predominant response is it's the kindness and support of my colleagues and the team I worked in and the compassion that our communities have shown that people have shown i mean we can too quickly forget what happened but that you know 99% of people stayed at home they didn't go out they didn't go and visit their loved ones, even when they were dying, maybe in care homes. People protected the NHS. I mean, we did extraordinary things in, in the name of compassion and caring. And what it, <clears throat> I think, means as a concept is, I mean, the real guru of compassion is Paul Gilbert. And he describes it as a sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a commitment to try to prevent or alleviate it and in practice it means i think four behaviors if someone is in pain or afraid or in distress it's about attending understanding empathizing and helping and attending is is about being present with the other person mm-hmm. being present So not working hard to be present, because then you're not being present, you're working hard. It's about relaxing back into being present in this moment with you and listening with fascination, to use Nancy Klein's lovely phrase. And that provides a basis then for understanding the other's pain or distress through having a dialogue, being present, listening with fascination and having a dialogue. And that in turn enables us to empathize with the other person, to feel their distress, their pain, their fear, without making it my drama. And again, what that does is motivates, gives us the motivation, if you like, for the critical element of compassion, which is helping or serving the other person in some way. And we know that um, compassion is very different from empathy alone. It's associated with the activation of reward centers in the brain. We get pleasure and reward from helping others whereas if we merely empathize we get we see the activation of pain centers in the brain because we we're, we're experiencing the others pain and we also know that there's um now a huge amount of evidence showing that compassion is the most important intervention there is in health and care it's important for patients and patient outcomes whether you look at Post surgery recovery, uh, end of life care, treatment of long term disorders, the treatment of mental health problems. It's associated with um, clinicians' mental health improving as a result of their being compassionate. Mm. So, we see in in studies that when you ask nurses, midwives, GPs to be extra compassionate in their interactions over a two week period, that's associated with a significant improvement in their own mental health and there are cost savings uh, huge cost savings you know overall the effect sizes of compassion are enormous so then the challenge for us is knowing all of this how do we create the conditions within our health care organisations where staff will be compassionate towards those they provide services for and where they'll be compassionate towards each other because that those two things go along together and where they'll be compassionate towards themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's about the the sort of cultures we create. And, of course, every one of us is a leader in shaping culture because every interaction we have every day in our teams, in our organizations, in our communities shapes the culture. We can shape it for good or for bad just dependent on how we behave, which is why being present is so important and being self-aware. But the role of leaders, we know, is particularly powerful. So, you know, if lead if we're to create compassionate cultures, then leaders must embody compassion in their leadership. And that means those four things. Leaders being present with those they lead, listening to them with fascination, having the courage to listen to them with fascination, having the courage to seek to understand the challenges they face. And I remember, as we were saying at the beginning, Anna, about the pressures that staff are under. And, and having the courage to seek to understand not not by, you know, being being somewhere else and thinking it through. It's through having dialogues with those we lead and then empathizing with those we lead, feeling what it's like to be a a midwife on your third 12, 13 hour night shift in a row and how utterly exhausted you are, and you haven't had time to take a rest break, and you're afraid that you may not be providing safe maternity care, and being then afraid to drive home in case you fall asleep at the wheel. So having the courage to empathise, and then having the courage to help. And that means helping those we lead to do their jobs more effectively by helping to ensure They've got the resources they need, the right numbers of staff, the right equipment, the right training and um, helping to remove the obstacles that get in the way. So that's a kind of long answer to your question, but I, I feel that it's really important to to understand deeply what we're talking about here.
0: And and that's, you know, thank you so much for that really full answer, but also for picking out the connections between, you know, the understanding of the word and the concept through to how it might be applied in practice and in leadership. And that's something mm. I know, Mum, you've always, re- I've always felt really fortunate to have amazingly compassionate leadership through my family networks. And Mum and my, my my grandma, who was a baker and really helped foster that giving and, and care for the community through giving you know bread to the community didn't she mother? she did
1: i think some do you think i guess this is a question as well michael as well as a um telling you a little story but my my we've always had lots of compassion in our family so i think we're all big empaths anyway but we've kind of seen we've seen that the kind of role modeling that you explain um in our in our my mum so she she used to give out food we had, we had a a cake shop, and I used to see us. She used to get up at four in the morning to bake, but in the evening time, she used to get lots of people, lonely people, coming in the shop, and she'd give them give the, give them food out. But she'd stand, and I knew she was exhausted, and I could see that she was tired, but she never said anything. And then, she, if we had any food left, she used to send us to everyone in the community to give it out. And I used to say I didn't want to go because I was a teenager and I was a bit fed up of doing all this. But eventually I realized when I got older that that was the most amazing thing that she did and the gifts that she gave. And so and when we've when we've ever been in situations when I started, I was a nurse at first before a midwife and. You know, my mum always talked to me about what, what I did at work and and always said to me, you know, you must make sure that everybody feels good. Make sure that they're OK. Smile. Make sure you smile and and connect. And um, and one of the things that happened to me last year during Covid was um, I was seriously ill. I was really, really poorly. I had a liver abscess and pneumonia mm. and I was in hospital for three weeks and I didn't have any visitors well for most of the time I didn't and so you know there's a saying that I've learned kind of over my career from others is that when you're in hospital and you're sat in a hospital bed nurses and doctors are on like they're on a stage so you see everything you watch everything and it's heightened attention all the time and and you know I very often tell student midwives and midwives this story because I say everyone was busy on this ward everyone everyone was flat out the nurses were running run ragged but the ones who made the difference to me and helped me to get better sort of in a psychological way i mean obviously i had the medicine to get me better but the ones who made me feel safer the ones who i i connected with were the ones who came into the room and actually gave me eye contact when they were doing when they were doing physical jobs so for example there was a difference between some some nurse who came in and did my blood pressure and pulse and temperature that didn't really talk to me or didn't give me eye contact and was dying to get out of the room from the others that came in and immediately got down to my level, smiled at me, eye contact, how are you today? And asked me that simple question as they were doing the job. So it didn't take them longer because actually they were, they were doing that anyway, but the way they spoke to me and what I, what I felt during that time, I actually felt love for those people. And as soon as I heard their voices coming into the ward, I used to, I used to relax. And sometimes I'd get tears in my eyes because I knew they were on duty, because the safe, the safety, the feeling of security and safety when I knew that they were on was remarkable. It was just, it was overwhelming. But then to, cause kind of, it's kind of giving you a practical example of what you've just talked about, because I used to then say to them, actually, I love it when you're on and they look at me and smile and then say we love looking after you so it's because mm. we we built this relationship mm. you see and they, so they got something back from me and um, like, which is yeah. what I was saying
2: and that's really clear from the research evidence that compassion is rewarding for us because you know it's a a motivational system we've developed over mm. um hundreds of thousands of years and yeah. It must have been harrowing for you to be in that situation, not able to have visitors, to feel isolated and to feel afraid. And the power of having some people who make eye contact, who are warm, who are caring, who connect, as you say, mm-hmm. is extraordinary. And, and what many clinicians say is, yes, yeah, this is all very well and good, but it takes more time. Well, actually the research evidence is it doesn't you're still you're doing the same things it's just you change the way you're doing it so while you're doing what you're doing you're attending understanding empathizing and helping and that's what we know that patients women families want is clinicians who attend who are present who seek to understand who empathize and help and that motivational system to nurture that we've evolved, of course, we've also evolved other motivational systems to compete, to aggress, to acquire resources. And, you know, they've, in a way, I think to go back to your earlier point, Anna, got very out of balance in our, in our species. We've become very threat focused and very resource acquisition focused. But the point is that this is that this nurturing, motivational, compassion orientation is is something that's hardwired into us. And and we can choose to nurture it, we can choose to develop it, to Mm -hmm. strengthen it almost, you know, like a muscle, a motivational Mm -hmm. system is the same, and uh, as a consequence, um, create more connection more circles of belonging around us and and that feeling of belonging that you get from the smile and the eye contact from that person in the ward and i hope you are recovering well now but that connection that you get um anna's just giving her mum a really big (laughs) hug (laughs) that that connection that you get is reaffirming the feeling of you know that of belonging and Belonging is so fundamental in human behaviour, you know, we're as likely to die from the effects of social isolation as we are from the effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's really fundamental. Um, and, and, And I suppose the more we understand this research, the more it gives us, I think it can give us hope for the challenges that we're facing, not just in... Midwifery and maternity services, but in health and care services and in society more generally, it is it is about you know for me it is about recognizing our connections and interconnectedness that you know that's at the heart of our of our existence.
0: And I've been feeling like so. I feel very much that through recent work that I've done with with other with colleagues to help support leaders and staff using the essence of the book and the really brilliant resources and, you know, appendices in here that give you really practical ways of, you know, beyond the language. You know, the, the great thing about research and bringing it together in a framework and a model is it gives you a language and a resource to use to chart out the next steps forward which can feel really overwhelming I think when you are in in healthcare and leadership but the, the, what I think we've been pointing to in our conversation is that really fits with some of the other work that I've been doing alongside um, alongside our work at All Maternities, trying to understand how we can generate well-being regardless of context you know context can be really tricky to shift and move and you know I think that we've you talked a little bit about, you know, maybe we, we've we orientated ourselves towards those like linear structures and processes at times. But actually, I feel very strongly that our natural state is one of, of well-being and grace and compassion for fellow man and kindness and warmth and generosity. Um, but having tools like your book... Uh-huh. I think, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is, you know, for leaders that are listening to this podcast, what 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 useful tools can they think about when they're trying to, maybe they're new into a leadership role or position? Um, and I found the ABC framework that you've written and described really intimately in your book really, really valuable for us setting, you know, All for Maternity is a small organisation that we're growing and we want to really think about our culture here and And that framework was really valuable. So I, I wondered if you could tell people that are listening a little bit more about the framework you've developed.
2: So the levels of stress that we're seeing amongst staff, particularly in maternity services, but more widely in the NHS, are, as we talked about earlier, are unsustainable. We can't go on like this. And what we're seeing is the introduction of health and wellbeing programmes in many parts of our health and care services. And that's great. But the but for me is, this is beyond mindfulness and yoga. And it's, you know, I don't mean in any way to dismiss those sorts of practices or dietary advice or advice on exercise or whatever. I learned about meditation in my first year at university and I did a PhD on the psychology of meditation back in the 1970s and I practice meditation every day. Uh, So it's a really, really important part of my life but it's those sorts of interventions are not a solution by themselves to the problems that staff face. The, the problem, that, the problem we have fundamentally is that we are not meeting the core human needs of staff at work. And it's a really important to understand. And this may sound like an extraordinarily silly thing to say, but it's a really important thing to understand that organisation, healthcare organisations, midwifery departments are made up of humans, of people. They're not resources. They're not, um, I don't know, assets. They're not kind of somehow impersonal numbers on a page. They're human beings. And we human beings have evolved in a particular way and we have core needs. One need is the need to feel like we have the freedom, we have freedom and control. In our lives generally, freedom and control we can to some extent control things we have some influence over in our lives and second is a need to belong we've talked about already and the third need is a need to be to have a sense of being effective that i can make a difference that i can effect change in my world when i need to and in the workplace that means a need for autonomy and control belonging and competence if you like or contribution And from the work I've been involved with over the last five years, uh, an inquiry on behalf of the General Medical Council and one for the Royal College of Nursing Foundation into the health and well-being of nurses and midwives, we identified, if you like, eight key elements linked to those three needs. So in relation to autonomy and control, nurses and midwives need to feel like they have voice and influence in their workplaces, that they're not just cogs in a system they need to feel they work in, secondly, in a context of justice and fairness and openness and learning, rather than what many reports, which is a a context of fear and blame. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're afraid the whole time, you don't feel like you have autonomy and control. And the third is a need for having control in the sense of over basic working conditions, like being able to take rest breaks when you mm-hmm. when you need them, when you're due them having access to nutritious food and hydration, being able to go to the toilet when you, when you desperately need to, being, having influence over rotors, rosters, and, and, and shift work, because that's about balancing home and work life, life. So those are all about autonomy and control. And belonging is primarily conferred by the teams we work in. So working in a team where I feel valued, respected, cared for, where we're effective as a team, where we have a sense of pride in what we do. And in a culture, in a wider organisation where I feel valued and respected and cared for, and where leaders are compassionate, and there's there's a compassionate culture, compassion for patients, compassion for colleagues, compassion for each other. And the third need is the need for competence or contribution, as I said. And That's primarily undermined by chronic work overload. And it's, you know, there are a few places in the system where that is more of a problem than midwifery. I mean, ambulance services are similarly under pressure. I mean, we estimate that over 50% of people working in midwifery um, are burned out often or all of the time. And that's tragic for people's own health and well-being, but also it has a big impact influence on the quality of care we're able to provide. Mm -hmm. And and the second element of competence is having supportive supervision on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And the third is continuing to grow and develop my skills. It's very hard to have a sense of contribution when we are kind of constantly feeling There's too much work. I'm not able to deliver the quality of care I feel I should be delivering. I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake. Um, And it, it induces, obviously, what's called moral distress. Now, it's to do with inadequate staff numbers, of course, but also with some of the unnecessary bureaucracy, some interdepartmental conflicts that we see, some interpersonal conflicts in teams. All of those things contribute to the sense of chronic work overload. Um, so what's inspiring, um for me, and particularly reflecting on what you were saying earlier about how everything at the moment can feel quite overwhelming with the fiscal crisis, with the climate, um, you know the uh, the heating planet and a war, and a health service which is you know, fracturing in various places. What gives hope, I think, is examples of places where these things are being addressed and got right. Whether it's the example of Northumbria Healthcare with its twin focus on family, women's experience, patient experience, and also on staff experience, Mersey Care with its just and learning culture. Um, So many organisations that during the pandemic supported staff with free meals, uh, free parking, self-rostering by the Royal Free and, and others. Um, or it's building really effective team working in Barts and the London or Royal Bournemouth and Christchurch, whether it's organizations addressing the problem of workload like East London Foundation Trust regularly asking its staff what they would reduce or get rid of and eliminating 85% of clinical audit activities Mm, and lots of unnecessary seeking managerial permission. Mm. Well, I think we've got to go to these places and learn from them and not simply mimic them, but say, let's adapt, let's learn from them. What can we adapt and use here? Mm. So there's, there's reason for hope. And lots of places, I think, are developing ways of better meeting the core needs of staff rightly i think the abc of core needs of staff as we called it autonomy and control belonging uh, contribution should be being discussed by every executive team at every meeting at every in every board meeting in every departmental review in uh, the cqc should be looking at it continually to what extent are we better meeting the core needs of our staff because our, the, the survival of our health service in a healthy form is dependent on us meeting these needs. Mm. After all, you know, perhaps one of the greatest paradoxes is we have a, a healthcare system focused on promoting the health and well-being mm. of the population. But in the process, we're profoundly damaging a large proportion of the biggest workforce we have in our economy. Mm. That can't be right. No, and it's no, in, sorry, we
0: go on. We're both we're both not trying to jump in here. It's um, no, no, it's fine. You, you, it's just. I think that for me, there feels like I think what what you've what what really comes across is that just now there is like this in, because of the 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 deficits and the lack of resource in terms of you know struggling to ha- to get the right levels of staff, for example you know, that cycle of, you know, offering compassionate care requires us to move into a helping. And if you leave work feeling you haven't helped in the way you'd have liked, Mm. if you weren't able able to fulfil the role in the way you preferred, you're not going to feel that you've contributed, which, Mm. you know, I'm really interested in Aaron Antonovsky's work and sense of coherence as a, as a, a construct to help us with, you know, generating well-being, personal, team, and it really resonates with the ABC, you know, that we need to understand what we're doing, we need to be able to manage and control what we're doing, and we need to have meaning in our work, in our lives. And I think that contribution section is about meaning, and I think it's... You know, Aaron, through all of his work, really found that, that that was the most important thing that to have in our lives. And I've been really interested in eudaimonics recently, and you know, this purposeful living. But if you're going to work, and your work for you is so important and purposeful, being a nurse, a midwife, in working in healthcare, you know, if you're unable to practice in the way that you envision that where you know is is going to deliver the best outcomes for the families that you really care about and you're feeling criticized continually in the press and you're getting constant criticism for things that you're not doing well or good enough. And that can be the same for leaders that want to do well for their, you know, you're going to feel continually morally distressed like we talk about that that is one of the biggest features of burnout. So just, you know, in as we're waiting to restore and build back and, you know, address Mm -hmm. our, all of these needs of, of of getting better resources and lobbying for more resources in that interim period as we move forwards and we we obviously want to stay hopeful what would be the things that you would say for midwifery leaders watching this midwives that are sorry listening to this what would you offer as words of advice
2: yeah well i think that um you know the points you're making are profoundly important and uh the moral distress that people experience that erodes that sense of coherence is widespread at the moment. And not just amongst clinical staff, but I think, as you hinted, amongst leaders as well, because many leaders feel, you know, I should be creating the conditions where the staff I'm leading can thrive in work, but we don't have enough staff, there's chronic work overload. And I feel like I'm not doing my job as a leader, effectively, because of that. And so they experience moral distress as well. And it becomes, you know, part of the, if you like, the environment. Um, the The other UK nations outside England have workforce strategies in place, and the government now is going to come up with a workforce strategy. And I read in the press today that that will be an independently verified workforce strategy. So that's really important. We need that in place because workforce and chronic work overload are, as you say, um, central to all of this. But what we can do, you know, we each have within our gift to be present with each other when we're working together, to be kind, to be caring, to be supportive. You know, what most people said during that first year of the pandemic was it was my colleagues who made the difference, who helped me cope with an arm around the shoulder, a cup of tea, a kind word, a joke. You know, we each have the capacity to be present and listen to each other and to be understanding, empathic and and helpful. But I think that, um, I think it's really important to focus on also developing the quality of our team working. And that may f- sound like a kind of rather, I don't know, a pedestrian thing to say, well, we, all, we we do team working already. Well, actually, the evidence we have is that the quality of team working is, is often not very good. And, and you know, we talked earlier about some of these recent inquiries, which have again and again said, look, it was the quality of the team working. At minimum, team working is about having clear, four or five clear, agreed, challenging goals focused on delivering effective care, promoting staff well being, developing new and improved ways of doing things, quality improvement working collaboratively and cooperatively with other te- the other teams and departments, making best use of our resources. You know, Let's be really clear about what we're focused on as a team. And let's make sure we build in time regularly to meet together, to review our performance, debriefs, after-action reviews. We know that teams that do that are dramatically more productive and more innovative in terms of quality improvement. But also we know that working in such teams is associated with 50% lower levels of staff stress. I mean, it's an incredible figure. Mm. So, you know, I I think that leaders in maternity can model their own compassionate leadership and that will uh, radiate out. That's, you know, the most powerful influence on the culture. We know from a hundred years of research on organizational culture is the behavior of leaders. But what we can also do is is continually focus on how to build more effective team working, where there isn't chronic interpersonal conflict, where we value everybody's contribution, where people are clear about their roles, where we're continually, continually learning, and where we're working cooperatively and collaboratively with other teams, other departments. It's back to that theme of interconnection again. We're not separate individuals. We're not separate teams. We're not separate organisations. The health service is not separate from the community that it serves. I I think we have to come to see ourselves as more cooperative, more collaborative, uh, in order to respond to the challenges we face. And that Building connection, the recognition of connection through belonging, that we talked about at the beginning, I think, is core to that.
0: And I, I think, I know, Mum, you've got some things you want to maybe ask, but but just core to that belonging piece and inclusivity. You know, we've 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 seen so much of the pressures and and it's highlighted the inequities and injustice. Uh, you know, the pandemic and. We see a lot across maternity with the recent reports, the Embrace report that sort of tracks outcomes and, um, you know, the most challenging outcomes, mortality rates, morbidity rates. And we're seeing disproportionate outcomes. And, you know, this to me is also the work that you've done also offers a guide for us to build more inclusive workplaces where we check in. With people, you know, some of the, the activities you recommend at each at the end of each chapter is really calls on us to go and seek out who might be the most vulnerable in our workplaces, who might have the least power, and asking what we're doing to help them feel included. And I think these sorts of practical suggestions you make, Michael, have been really helpful when we've been looking at the work of our organization to address structural racism and, you know, structural discrimination and institutional discrimination that we continue to see in our societies, it it does offer a tool to help with that too. Mm I don't know if there's anything you want to offer around those aspects of compassionate care and cultures.
2: Yeah. I mean, we know that, um, I mean, one of the really interesting findings from our research using um, actually staff survey data, census data, patient satisfaction data and CQC data is the more representative frontline staff are of their communities, the better is the care quality and the financial performance of trusts. And we know why. It's because of the compassion shown to patients. So when staff are representative of their communities, they're more compassionate to patients. The implication of that is that we need to help all staff to learn that critical to care quality is being compassionate. And particularly when we are providing care for people who we may feel are somehow other than us or different from us, people with a disability, people from minority ethnic groups, people from a different cultural background. So the importance of developing An awareness of compassion and its importance in everybody that we work with, and particularly those who may seem somehow different from us, Mm. is vital. And and recognising that, of course, as you've described... Inclusion and diversity are health issues. They're hugely important health issues in terms of differential health outcomes and health inequities, but and particularly that report showing the impact on, for example, maternal mortality for people from minority ethnic groups. And the importance also of all of the research, I mean, I've been studying diversity in teams since the 1980s, and all of the evidence we have is the more diverse a team, if it has clear goals and a positive climate, then those teams are much more innovative, much more effective, much more productive, um, and that's true whether we're talking about a board of an NHS trusts or a trust or a maternity team or a primary healthcare team, and and also you know to recognise that I suppose a, a deeper point for me is diversity is the nature of our reality. You know, if we look at human beings, we are incredibly diverse. We're each unique. What greater diversity can there can there be, where you know we we um, we categorise and group and lump, uh, but actually we're each individually different. We we are our, our biological environment is incredibly diverse. Nature is just extraordinarily diverse. We're beginning to learn about how incredibly complex. The soil that we walk on is underneath our feet. We've got maybe one millionth of the way to understanding. And the nature of our solar system, of the galaxy, of the universe is diverse. And we human beings, I think, have to come to recognize that diversity is so beautiful. It's the nature of our universe. And we are all interconnected. <clears throat> we are, in a sense, we are all manifestations of diversity. And we have to, I think, evolve Now, part of our evolutionary journey is to recognize the beauty of the diversity and our interconnection with every other person. You know, in a way, when we look at another person, we're looking at ourselves, whoever that person is. And, you know, it is about that deep recognition of our belonging together and our interconnection is manifest in what I think we, we mean when we use the word love.
0: Mm-hmm. and
2: it is ultimately i think loving mm-hmm. everything that we encounter mm-hmm. in in our in in our existence that helps us to not just intellectually understand the importance of and the value of diversity but experientially to make it a reality for ourselves
1: honestly it's so it's so wonderful to listen to you michael and you know, to, to hear you talking about these things because the things that we've we've pondered on so many times and we actually in our work we, you know, deliver sessions similar to what you're saying. So it's great to have this, you know, that the the your your all your expertise as a backdrop to what we're doing is absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. and you know you're really the fun you're the foundations of what we do. And time is running out now and, and we're, we're going to be coming to the end. But just to quickly mention because it may have been crossed the mind of several leaders when I was working in a very senior position in an NHS organization, one of the things that bothered me was the bureaucracy. And I've just met one of my colleagues the other day, and she said, "Oh, Sheena, it's getting worse, you know." And we're pulled away from caring for people um, because of the bureaucracy and and tick boxes, and you know, we haven't got time to go into it now. But I did feel like I needed to just mention it because I know that people who are listening will, you know, maybe have reflected on that as well because it is a challenge and has been a growing challenge and is getting even more so. So we have to as well you know you talk about the courage with the compassion which courage and compassion to me uh, go together just absolutely and in in fact it's the compassionate self that makes me more courageous and i think standing up to uh, to to, the, to these situations and saying to our government and to the powers that be we have to reduce the bureaucracy in in a in a way that you know still encompasses safety but we we have to get back to that kind of, you know, nurturing uh, um, and back to, because what this person said to me was that there seems to be enough people on the ground. It's just that they can't do their job anymore. So on top of on top of everything you said and in, in conjunction with it, it is, you know, we have to pay attention to these things as well, don't we?
2: Yeah. So the um, National Academy of Sciences has recently produced in the the US has recently produced a report after about four years of research, um, focused on the well-being of staff and a key the key one of the key factors they mentioned out of about seven or eight is the elimination of the vast amounts of unnecessary bureaucracy, which are um, exhausting staff and corroding their ability to deliver high-quality care. And linked to it is the ridiculously hierarchical system that we have in our healthcare system from all these multiple national bodies we all trying to control, yeah. and, and as well the hierarchies within organisations. The most effective organisations in the world usually have no more than three or four reporting levels. Well, in the typical NHS trust, reporting levels are well into double figures, and it's estimated that for every reporting level you add, you add about 10% to bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And the other absolutely. thing I would say is, you know, some fascinating research. When people, when human beings are asked to improve a system, be it a recruitment system or a Lego building, 95 percent of the time they add something. Yeah. When actually, you know, you think of the implications of that. We just keep adding stuff, That's stuff, different. stuff, oh, stuff, absolutely. rather than simplifying. And very often. The best way to improve something is to simplify it. It's okay. taking stuff away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that that you know, COVID, one of the things it did bring in that initial phase in that first year, 2020 year, we did mm. see a mass reduction mm, in bureaucracy. I did. You know, things that would have taken ages to get through boards and processing in healthcare were were removed. Researchers were able to quickly process ethical mm. applications for ethics approvals. You know, that everything became much quicker and easier. People could speak directly to the people that mattered to make quick decisions to make a difference mm. to health outcomes. And and that was impressive to see, and I think it's you know part of the recovery from COVID is to build back better. It, which is a phrase that I know has been used lots, is um, you know we don't have to we don't have to create the same um, processes again. We can learn what has worked well, mm-hmm. and we've sort of seen a lot of studies that have helped us to understand that f- during COVID, but everything is possible. I think what I've taken away from speaking to you today or listening to you today is just to keep hold of hope, having the direction of this guide for us to think about how we want our healthcare to be and become. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you for having the opportunity to listen to you and and your insights. And I hope our Our listeners have also seen a lot of benefit for them in their own practice and their leadership work. And we wish you well, Michael. We wish you. We know that you're off to catch
1: a train now, and we hope that you have a a great day and that you continue to be able to inspire the whole world with the work that you're doing, and that you continue to give us hope. Because you know it's always great to have someone that's got the the knowledge that you have that we can kind of refer to all the time. So. You know, I hope that you continue to have a wonderful career and that we well, stay. Thank
2: much. You. Well, thank you both very much. And, um, you know, it's a privilege for me to have the conversation with you. It's a real joy. And I now have a new hero as well, which is your mother, Sheena, and your grandmother, Anna. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you
1: very much, Michael. Pleasure. Have a great Lots day. Goodbye. Lots of love. Thank bye. Everyone. Bye bye.